I feel a natural hush, so uh, let us seize the moment and welcome you here today to this um, Polis Public Lecture. Uh, my name is Sonia Livingstone and I chair the Department of Media and Communications within which Polis is our um, media and journalism think tank uh, addressing a range of controversial issues uh, in an age of globalisation. And um, we're very pleased tonight to uh, welcome our speaker, um, who uh, is, I think, interestingly positioned uh, to give us some uh, key thoughts on both on the BBC, on public service broadcasting, and on issues of the changing media and communication landscape. Our speaker has a very um, uh, illustrious CV, though, which I shan't um, read out at uh, length, though I was pleased to see that once he was an academic, so those of us who find universities rather depressing places can uh, think of uh, future careers elsewhere, perhaps. Um, <laughs> though, of course, it's not so bad. Um, so, Sir Michael Lyons, um, chairman of the BBC Trust, uh, which replaced the BBC Board of Governors in 2007. Um, so Michael has said as he is um, stepping down that uh, the job has been demanding in ways that perhaps he will uh, elaborate on, that there is still uh, much to be done. Uh, perhaps we will have some uh, words of wisdom for his uh, successor. Um, but I'm sure also that there are many ways in which uh, he will argue BBC governance has been uh, um, successfully improved in his time under his watch. So I very much look forward to his uh, comments this evening. He's going to speak for about 45 minutes. We will then have uh, a period for questions, so I'm sure there will be many uh, from the floor. Uh, and I would like now very warmly to invite him to address us this evening. Well, Sonia, can I thank you for those, uh, those introductory comments and for the opportunity to come along and uh, uh, share these thoughts with you. And let me say um, thank you all for coming and joining in this. Uh, this is the last big speech that I'm going to make as BBC chairman, so I'd like to use it to reflect on the, on the past four years, to reflect on the record of the BBC in general and also of the Trust in particular, and I'd also like to say something about the challenges the BBC and the Trust face in the years ahead. I'd like to start with what might seem to be a controversial statement, and it's this, that when history comes to be written, these last few years will be seen as one of the BBC's strong periods. You might think I would say that, wouldn't I? And of course there have been some memorable cock-ups, which I will also talk about tonight. But when you draw up the score sheet, there are many more ticks on the positive side than crosses on the negative. And what does the score sheet tell us? Public affection for the BBC continues strongly, and our research shows that trust in the corporation is higher than it was six years ago. The overall quality of BBC programmes and online content continues to improve. The BBC continues to reach very much every household in the land every week. The BBC is demonstrably offering better value for money overall on a year by, as year-by-year -year efficiencies free more cash 
to put into content. And the BBC continues that distinguished tradition of helping audiences make the transition to new technologies that enrich their lives. For example, digital switchover, a project of immense complexity across the whole UK, is being achieved smoothly and without disruption. And of course, the, IB, the, the BBC iPlayer, probably the best on-demand service anywhere in the world, and soon to be piloted on the iPad outside the UK, and goes from strength to strength. I could go on. Now, of course, there must be no room for complacency here. To use the permanent trust refrain, the BBC can and must always do better. But I think the narrative that I've begun to sketch out is pretty compelling. So given all those positives, why have the last four years seemed so tempestuous? Well, perhaps it was always thus with the BBC. There's a particular sound that everyone who has ever led the corporation becomes accustomed to, the sound of incoming fire. And once at the top of the BBC, you very quickly learn to empathise with Harold Macmillan's diagnosis as to where the next set of problems will come from. Events, dear boy, events. So perhaps it just goes with the territory. But I think the recent period has been particularly turbulent for the BBC. This may be because we're still close to the greatest existential threat that the BBC has faced in recent times the events that led to the Hutton report. This was something that tested the BBC's leadership. It tested the BBC's governance model, and it tested the standards of the BBC's journalism. Above all, it demonstrated that it's never enough to be onto a great story. You also have to have robust professional practices at all levels if you're going to land your story successfully. Making absolutely sure that those professional practices are in place, underpinned by sound governance, has been a recurring theme ever since. But Hutton makes up only part of the storms that have been blowing round the BBC in recent years. I think it's true to say that there are two events that will always indicate the BBC is likely to be heading for choppy waters. One is a recession and the other is a general election. And of course we've had both in that period. The recession caused advertising revenues to shrink dramatically. This in turn seriously weakened the BBC's advertising-funded competitors. Suddenly, the BBC, with its guaranteed income and its ability to maintain its scale and levels of investment, started to look like a dangerously tall poppy, ripe for cutting down to size. At the same time, the government with an election approaching, was losing public support. And it remains a sad truth that governments of whatever stripe will, when under pressure, always tend to see the BBC as the architect rather than the messenger of change. Election periods usually mean pressure on the BBC from all parties as they tussle to get their messages across and become hypersensitive to issues of balance and editorial choice. And while the recession and the election were changing the BBC weather, tornadoes were also blowing up elsewhere. The digital revolution, itself one of the defining aspects of this period, brought structural change. Advertising-funded media, particularly newspapers, 
already weakened by the economic downturn, were subject to extreme stress as advertisers shifted their spend online. And the BBC's own prescient investment in online content just seemed to intensify the grievance. Google emerged as a muscular new player in media markets, and there was heavyweight muscle elsewhere too, with Sky having the financial clout to easily outspend its competitors, including the BBC. And during all of this externally induced change, the BBC was pushing through its own huge change programmes, ambitious efficiency targets, big investments in new technology, the pressing need to improve editorial standards and to strengthen compliance systems, and there was also the drive to increase very significantly the share of BBC production made in the nations and regions. These were all absolutely necessary, but they undoubtedly caused, and in some cases continue to cause, internal stresses and strains. Indeed, while there have been plenty of external critics during this period, it sometimes seemed that they've been outnumbered by the internal ones, some of them with direct access to primetime airspace. So as I say, plenty of incoming fire from all directions. And every now and again, the BBC would add to the mix by shooting itself in the foot. To the amazement of supporters, both within and without the BBC, it allowed itself to become caught up in the serious scandal of bogus competitions that swept damagingly through commercial broadcasting. Then there was the trailer for a documentary about the Queen, which wrongly implied that she'd walked out of a portrait session. And then, of course, there was Ross Brand. Now, I've sometimes wondered if any BBC scriptwriter would ever have had the nerve to invent uh, Ross Brand. It's a uniquely toxic combination of profanity, misogyny, bullying and black humour. But it's exposed an unforgivably cavalier attitude to editorial standards in some parts of the BBC and seemed for some to suggest that the BBC had lost its moral compass. Now let me um, be clear that I don't distance myself uh, from those problems. I don't distance the trust for them. A problem for the BBC is a problem for the trust. And we don't shrink from that. And indeed, all the evidence of the last four years is where the trust and the management are working closely together to tackle problems, we're jointly at our best. The serious problems revealed by Ross Brand and those other uh, incidents have now been addressed. And although there may have been doubts about some of the medicine, it seems to have worked. And let me also be clear that the Trust hasn't got everything right itself as we've grown into our role and responsibilities. For example, I think we could have been clearer in demonstrating that we were actively tackling some issues of public concern while acknowledging that they were difficult and would take time to deliver upon. In particular, I'm thinking of the challenge of cutting the BBC's senior manager pay bill. That's not something that can be done over time. It takes care, and the but the Trust has been on to the issue since early in 2008. But we could have been clearer that we were on the job and seeking the changes which we've now brought about. So externally and internally, 
This has been a turbulent period for the BBC. And there's one other contributory factor to consider, the revised governance arrangements that came in with the new charter. Change here was inevitable. The old system, the BBC governors, which had, broadly speaking, served the BBC well for more than 70 years, had some serious weaknesses exposed by the Hutton process. But even without Hutton, times had changed, and with them public expectations of what should be expected from modern corporate governance, whether in the private or the public sector, not least in terms of transparency and public accountability. In the run-up to the Charter renewal, there was a vigorous and wide-ranging debate as to the best model to apply when replacing the BBC governors. Lord Burns headed a committee that came out strongly in favour of a completely separate regulator for the BBC. And the Burns Committee found support from some powerful voices, some of whom saw a straightforward competitive advantage for themselves in a more tightly regulated BBC, some, some of whom saw potential for improved value for money, and some of whom saw a separate regulator as the best route to improved editorial standards and higher quality programmes. Others, however, saw a big problem lurking at the heart of the Burns proposal for an external regulator with the power to distribute the licence fee. The problem was the potential threat to the independence of the BBC and therefore ultimately to its impartiality. The fear was that the BBC, under permanent threat of losing its income, would inevitably be enthralled to its regulator. Opponents of Burns argued instead for a solution that would maintain the BBC's integrity and independence while also delivering the benefits of stronger scrutiny and challenge. And ultimately, it was their voices that weighed with the then Culture Secretary, Tessa Jowell, and so too with the then Labour government. That government had no doubt also taken account of deep public disquiet at the Hutton verdict and the apparent prospect of the BBC, their BBC, having in future to kowtow to Downing Street. Indeed, you may remember the title that Tessa Jowell gave to her 2005 Green Paper, setting out, amongst other things, her approach to BBC governance. She called the Green Paper a strong BBC independent of government. The clue, I think, was in the title. And so the trust came into being. Give me a moment to... Uh... So the trust came into being. Uh, the trust would uh, be part of the BBC and therefore able to guard its independence, but with much greater separation from the executive than had been the case with the governors. Not a traditional regulator, in fact, not really a regulator at all, but with significant powers and the resources to challenge BBC management and to shape the BBC on behalf of the public who own it. However, if Tessa Jowell thought her decision would bring an end to the arguments over the right structure for governance, she was sadly mistaken. The controversy did not go away. Now, to some extent, that was predictable. Even inside the BBC, the trust idea was not well understood. 
Even now, you can find some within the corporation who don't fully understand the trust parental powers and responsibilities. The situation wasn't helped when the key BBC champion of the trust model, the then chairman Michael Grade, who'd put commendable energy into negotiating the small print, surprised everyone by leaving the BBC before the trust was fully operational. So we have to admit, I think, that the trust had a less than perfect birth. And some of those who opposed its very conception have maintained their opposition to what they see as an uneasy hybrid, characterised in the sometimes Manichaean universe of abstract governments theory as neither fish nor fowl. Not quite a regulator, not quite a cheerleader. That's something I'll return to uh, in a few moments. This continuing controversy over the structure of the trust has made its own contribution to the general turbulence surrounding the BBC. However, I came into this job with a very clear vision of the trust role as something much more than a regulator, and concentrating on this has enabled us to ride out the, surra the uh, surrounding squalls. What we've concentrated on is the key job of representing the interests of the British public. That's the thread that runs through everything we've done. That's the real focus of what we do. That's what the trust is really about. I'll give you an example. Our public offer to freeze the licence fee for the remaining two years of the current settlement. This was, I believe, unprecedented in the 90-year history of the licence fee. The Trust made that offer because it, we felt it was clearly in licence fee payers' interest at that time when many were experiencing intense pressures on their household budgets. It's clear evidence, I think, that the Trust exists to represent first and foremost the interests of the public. And that's why I feel when I'm frequently asked the question as to whether the Trust is a regulator or a, cheer, or a cheerleader, that the question simply misses the point. It's the wrong question. The Trust isn't here to be a cheerleader or even a regulator in the traditional sense. It exists to represent the public. So after our first four years, the right question to ask is, how have we done in representing that public interest. In answering the question, let me briefly describe the trust as it is, the reality, not the fiction. Fundamentally, the trust is a supervisory board with some regulatory functions, most notably the oversight of accuracy and impartiality, just like the governors before us. It is markedly more separate from the executive than was the case with the governors, and it has its own professional support staff. It approves strategy and headline budgets. The executive manages day-to-day -day functions, and the director general is both chief executive and editor-in-chief, with the trust there to protect the independence of that latter role in particular. And the trust has one significantly different power compared with the governors. It has the authority to approve new BBC services, a power that used to lie with the Secretary of State. The Charter defines these roles and focuses the Trust on the fundamental duty of representing the public interest in its governance of the BBC. This translates, first of all, 
into guarding the independence of the BBC. For on that, on that independence hangs the high level of public trust that the BBC enjoys and is critical to its fulfilling its public functions. But it also translates into a consistent challenge from the trust to the executive to do better in terms of value for money, impartiality, distinctiveness and better serving the BBC's many different audiences across the United Kingdom. As you can see, I hope, this is quite a meaty set of functions. The Trust is a serious institution with a serious job to do. As to our record in doing that job, let me begin with the programmes the BBC commissions and broadcasts. The Trust challenge to the executive here has been to increase the quality and distinctiveness of BBC output. This is at the top of our agenda because work with the public suggests that it's the area where the public feel the BBC has furthest to travel. Now, I recognise that uh, distinctiveness is one of those motherhood words. Everyone in the BBC signs up to it. Every BBC commissioner and programme maker claims that their own output demonstrates it. And it's very much a BBC word, too. What the public are really thinking about when they cite this as an area for improvement is their interest in fresh and new content, which brings with it an expectation of both quality and ambition. This has been a core part of the BBC's mission under the Trust because we believe that by focusing on distinctiveness, the BBC will produce genuinely innovative content that delights and surprises its audiences with new programme concepts, formats and talent. In our view, that is a critical part, that is the quid pro quo for the privilege of the licence fee and that very substantial guaranteed income. And the trust is clear that gauging the impact of the BBC isn't just a numbers game. Audience size and share do matter, but our emphasis has been much more on audience appreciation. And that's why the trust has been working with programme makers and commissioners to develop a clearer understanding of distinctiveness and how it can be achieved. And we've identified four key values. One high editorial standards. Two, creative and editorial ambition. The public expects the BBC to take some considered risks to do new things and not to be afraid sometimes to challenge its audiences. Third, range and depth, taking all audiences seriously. And finally, there's a British component too. The public want to see their lives their uh, experiences reflected on their screens and airways. Through its ongoing focus on qual the quality of BBC programmes, I think the trust work is already having an impact. At station level, recommendations from our service review of Radio 2 have led to changes including new arts programming in peak time and a series of social action campaigns. On BBC 2, New documentary, drama and comedy output is having a tangible impact on audience approval levels. At an individual programme level, here's a recent example of what distinctiveness can mean in practice. A BBC documentary called Women, Weddings, War and Me. It tells the story of a young woman called Nell 
who fled to Britain from Afghanistan with her family at the age of six. Now age 21, and having grown up in London, she makes her first journey back to Kabul to meet her extended family, to explore her culture, and to begin to negotiate her own identity as a British Afghan. It's a wonderful piece, fresh, vivid, eye-opening, brave, ambitious, moving. And there are two interesting things about it. It was a BBC Three commission, and BBC Three's audience absolutely loved it. The AI, the Appreciation Index, score was 95. That's almost off the scale. It's a textbook example of how to bring a, to a young audience a difficult subject and yet utterly delight them and do it without the slightest hint of dumbing down. It shows what can be done. And it would be remiss of me, I think, not to mention BBC Four here, which has a great track record of producing the kind of fresh and new programmes that time and again earn high appreciation scores from audiences. The next step is for BBC to share its riches with a wider audience. The main challenge, of course, is to get more of this high-quality and distinctive material into the, big two the two big channels, BBC One and BBC Two, in ways that work for those audiences. And let me underline that we do recognise real progress against this challenge, but we also know that the public have very high expectations and there's further still to go. Distinctiveness cannot just be devolved to the digital channels. There's one other thing to be said about distinctiveness, and that concerns the way it plays out in terms of the BBC's competitive impact. Of course, BBC should not just be about making programmes that others don't. However, the more the BBC concentrates on truly distinctive output, the less likely it is to stray into areas best left to commercial broadcasters, and the more likely it is to, create, to provide creative leadership to the whole sector. The more the BBC uses the privilege of the licence fee to test boundaries, to create new approaches, to discover new fresh talent, to reveal treasures and mysteries hidden from view, the more it will both delight uh, audiences and also break new ground. After quality and distinctiveness comes the objective of serving all audiences. And I start here with what I regard as an obvious truth. Although some people still seem to find it hard to come to grips with it, modern Britain has an astonishingly, an astonishingly diverse population and the BBC has to respond to that diversity. Now, I can admit the BBC does not yet adequately serve all its audiences in all parts of the UK. This explains, I believe, the figures which show that affection for the BBC generally reduces the further away you live from London and the South East. There is a clear deficit here, and the problem has been made worse by the decay of the once vibrant regional ITV structures. The imperative to serve all audiences is not a recipe for dumbing down. It's a challenge to the BBC, 
to embrace every member of the public, wherever they live, whatever their background, with programmes of high quality and, and distinctiveness. It boils down to a simple principle. Everybody pays, so everybody should feel they get value uh, for their contribution. And progress is being made on a number of different fronts. The BBC has taken the strategic decision to spread much more of its investment across the whole of the UK rather than concentrating it in London and the South East as the commercial broadcasters now do. It means investing in new BBC production centres such as Salford and new creative clusters such as the very successful BBC Drama Centre in Cardiff. And it also means putting more energy into investing in new partnerships. For example, in Salford, the BBC has just signed a partnership with Conquer Media to create the so-called Digital Fiction Factory. This will be a new kind of production centre, creating content not just for TV, but for mobiles and digital devices too, a real pointer to the future. In addition to the economic benefits of this out of London, that this out-of-London policy produces for the nations and regions, it also brings the BBC closer to its audiences and brings those audiences in turn closer to the BBC. And that's the real driving force behind this policy. Our primary, policy, our primary goal is to ensure that audiences, wherever they live, see their lives reflected in BBC output and see their lives reflected by the BBC to other audiences across the United Kingdom. In other words, this ideal of serving all audiences has a strong editorial edge. Indeed, just one of the Trust's achievements, of which I'm proud, is our decision to require BBC News to dramatically improve its performance in reporting the devolved nations of the UK both to themselves and to one another. We now take it for granted that when a new piece of legislation is announced, BBC journalists will make clear which parts of the UK it applies to and which parts it does not. We now take it for granted the BBC will make regular comparisons in its reporting between the way that big social issues, university tuition fees or prescription charges, are dealt with in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland as compared to England. We now take it for granted that BBC News adopts a much less London-centred view of the United Kingdom. But that wasn't always the case. Our, our 2008 report into the impartiality of coverage of the nations with illuminating analysis by Professor Tony King, which the Trust has regularly followed up on since, marked a real turning point. And public trust in the authority of the BBC journalism has, I believe, been strengthened as a result. Serving all audiences is, of course, also partly about access, about technology, about distribution. We're seeking to ensure that every household in the UK has convenient access to every relevant BBC service, free at the point of use. And we've further detailed plans in place to make this happen in television, radio and online, and also in the new generation of digital devices. As I acknowledged earlier, one of the great overarching themes of these past four years has been the sheer scale of the digital transformation. And we know there is more to come as the BBC continues its digital journey. We are heading towards a world 
where people have many devices capable of receiving digital content. The concept of separate platforms may become redundant, perhaps leaving space to concentrate investment much more intently on great content. But technology will still matter, especially the technology to enable us to navigate the potentially infinite riches on offer to find the content that we want. The task of the BBC is to is both to bring to everyone in the UK the benefits of these new communications technologies, but also to ensure we safeguard the public space and convenient access to all BBC content for all licence fee payers. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Next on the list of trust priorities is that of value for money. This is really important. Trust has ultimate responsibility for the good stewardship of the money the public gives to the BBC and it's a responsibility we take seriously. We've also insisted that the BBC continues to become significantly more efficient year on year, continues to bear down on its costs, continues to free up cash to put into programmes. We've taken decisive action to ensure the BBC spends much less on top salaries and on the fees that it pays to big stars. And we've successfully kept up the pressure on the BBC to continue to reduce its overheads, even at a time when it's been investing heavily in new production centres and in modernising and reshaping its estate to make it fit for the digital journey. Another key area where we've made good progress is in the area of openness and transparency. Now, in part, this is about making more information public, figures for top salaries and so on. And the BBC has begun to make decent progress here. But much more important, I think, as far as the trust is concerned, is that in our own actions, we model the open and accountable behaviour we expect of the, rest of, the, of the rest of the BBC to exhibit. And I think the evidence shows that we've done just that. A good example is the process we go through before we approve any new BBC service or a significant change in an existing service. As you may know, the process involves a public value test designed to establish the public value created by a proposed new service and to compare it with any potential negative impact on the wider market. The key here is to ensure that we take the widest possible view of the public interest weighing not only the strength of support for a new service, but also taking account of what the public might lose in terms of displaced market provision. Clear evidence of the Trust acting as guardians of the public interest rather than narrow defenders of BBC corporate interests. The point of the public value approach is not to shove the BBC into a cul-de-sac signed market failure, making only those programmes that the market would never provide. The point of public value is to emphasise the aspects of quality and distinctiveness that the BBC should concentrate on. And it's worth noting, incidentally, that the public value test, or PVT, pioneered by the Trust, is now held up as a model for other European public service broadcasters by the European Commission. The PVT approach is a rigorous evidence-based investigation 
We consult widely, we report openly, we share evidence that we've used as well as our reasoning and conclusions, and at the end of the process, we, sometimes we say yes, but sometimes we've said no. We said no to the BBC proposals for an ultra-local video news service delivered over the internet because we judged the proposals did not create sufficient public value. Audience who, audiences who want local news told us clearly that they want to get it via television and radio, not over the web. And we took the controversial decision to close down the online education service, BBC Jam, even though it was rather good, because the market was already providing something similar and it wasn't in the wider public interest to weaken that provision. This open, objective, evidence-based process of given the trust PVT rulings a quality of robustness and resistance to further challenge. This robustness is, if you like, the return on the trust's significant investment in openness and transparency. That same investment is bearing fruit in other areas too. For example, the growing ability of the BBC to use its complaints as a chance to learn and raise its game, rather than, as was once the case, to retreat into endless detailed defence. And there's the openness of new partnerships and the much greater sensitivity on the part of the BBC to the impact that it has on other players in the media marketplace. This is all evidence of the way the Trust has, over its first four years, been reshaping the BBC to make it much more responsive to the broad interests of the public who pay for it. But of course, none of it matters very much if at the end of the day, the reshaped BBC doesn't also produce the programmes that delight, that inform, that educate and entertain. Now, as I've said, there is more to do in the area of content that audiences recognise as full of fresh and new ideas. But our constant challenge to improve programme quality is bearing fruit. Look at the schedules over the last few years, and it's not hard to find programmes of the range, depth and quality that only the BBC could commission or make. Some of my personal favourites, the ones I might take with me to, uh, to that uh, mythical desert island, might include the following. The History of the World in a Hundred Objects, an absolutely enthralling series, not just informing and educating, but wearing its learning so lightly that it counted as entertainment too. Behind the series is a story of a fruitful new web of partnerships forged between the BBC and the British Museum, but extending to embrace museums and other bodies across the United Kingdom. Behind the series too is a story of digital innovation in the way the material was presented, not just for broadcast, but in lasting presence on the web. There's also been some truly outstanding drama, including consistently great work from Jimmy McGovern and his colleagues, and some very shrewd imports, including the impressive Forbrid Elson, currently on our screens, uh, on our screens uh, under the title Killing. But let me pick out just one memorable piece. Five Minutes of Heaven, 
a powerful and sensitive feature film quarried from the history of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland. It was commissioned by the BBC, made in Northern Ireland, and put together with international funding and international talent, including the distinguished German director, Oliver Hirschbiegel. An indication of the reach, ambition, and willingness to take creative risks that characterises the BBC at its best. An indication, too, of the rich theme of talent and creativity that exists right across the United Kingdom. Like the BBC's Drama Centre in Cardiff, a standing rebuke to those who appear to believe that if you can't get to it on the London Tube, it can't be capable of producing world-class work. And there's been some great UK comedy too. And let's acknowledge that comedy is one of the most difficult genres to get right. Outnumbered, Gavin and Stacey, Miranda. These are special, not just because they're very funny, but because they show the great tradition of BBC comedy that the whole family can enjoy together is still thriving. And there's been great knowledge television as well. This is an area where the BBC has responded well to trust promptings. Human Planet, The Beauty of Maps, Wonders of the Solar System, and there have been many more. BBC News has much to be proud of during this period too. To just give a few examples, its coverage of the global financial crisis, both in the succession of scoops that it delivered and in the quality of analysis it brought to bear throughout. Its first-rate coverage of the general election, the campaign, the results, and the subsequent birth of the coalition. And as I speak now, the unfolding revolutions sweeping through the Arab world are being covered by the BBC with exemplary range and authority on television, radio, and online, also underscoring the importance of the World Service's relatively new Arabic and Farsi television channels. As you can see from that, the set of BBC DVDs on its way to my new Atoll home is going to fill a pretty substantial packing case, and I still have to find room on my desert island for much more of Radio 4. Where else can you find the range and quality offered by what constitutes my very favourite BBC service. Now let me say, I do understand the fears of loyal listeners who fear that the change that we've talked about in our recent review might mean the dilution of this great BBC offering. And I also recognise that some of the media reporting of the recent Trust Review into Radio 4 has given the impression that somehow we want to throw it away and start again. But let me underline that nothing could be further from the truth. Radio 4 has been well led over the last four years, and Gwyneth Williams will continue that now. It is constantly being refreshed with new ideas and new personalities. I'm confident that still more will be done to fully reflect life in all parts of the United Kingdom. But most of all, what we want is to share this national treasure with more people. And I'm confident that this can be achieved without alienating Radio 4's fanatically, at times, loyal supporters. 
So let me move from content and think about what lies ahead. Now I suspect that some of the journalists here tonight uh, might expect me to deliver some kind of uh, handover note to Lord Patton. Um, well, I'm going to be sorry and disappoint you. Uh, Chris Patton, should he be confirmed as Trust Chairman, is, I'm sure, quite capable of shaping his own agenda without any help from me. I will, nonetheless, uh, if, we, if he arrives, welcome him most warmly to both the delights and, uh, and the occasional challenges of the role. But what I do want to do tonight is to end by summarising just a few of the areas where work begun under my chairmanship and carried forward energetically with my colleagues will bear fruit under the next and also sketch out some of those issues which will always be at or near the top of the trust in trade. With limited time available, I will identify just five. We are at the moment currently finalising a new three-year strategy for BBC, for BBC Worldwide, the BBC's commercial arm in the context of our recently published statements on commercial behaviour and global purpose. The Trust's central thrust on Worldwide has been to seek to strike the right balance. On one hand, BBC Worldwide produces much needed revenue to make the licence fee go further, with some £170 million returned to the BBC through dividends, programming investment and rights last year. On the other hand, it must never act in a way that might damage the BBC's brand or reputation and must take care not to have so profound an impact on competitors that they in turn challenge the very existence of the BBC itself. However appealing the potential returns, worldwide must resist the temptation to invest in programmes or enterprises that are not a good fit with the BBC's public purposes. Most of, most of all, the BBC must never find itself in a position where raising extra revenue, obviously a temptation in difficult times, takes precedence over maintaining the BBC's editorial integrity. The commercial tail must never be allowed to wag the editorial dog. Nor should worldwide ever be tempted to work to different values abroad than it does here in the UK. And we've seen some graphic illustrations in recent weeks of the room for a disconnect in how we behave at home and how we behave abroad. I'm clear there is only one BBC and the worldwide is firmly part of it. Now another big issue in the years ahead will be implementing the recent licence fee settlement. The Trust anticipated that this would be a tough settlement and we prepared for it with a strategic review, including very extensive public consultation. We've published the results of that, and it provides a route map for the future. One of the great things about the settlement is that it gives the BBC a welcome degree of financial stability over the next five years. And the government has undertaken, clearly, not to come back for a second bite. On the other hand, the full impact on BBC services depends very much on the level of cost inflation over the next five years and nobody knows what will happen there. So there will undoubtedly be difficult choices to be made. And we are clear 
that a focus on quality and serving all audiences with distinctive content must be the, the, the uh, message throughout that exercise. My third strand relates to the BBC's duty under the Charter to, and I quote, sustain citizenship through the enrichment of the public realm, a duty with clear implications for the BBC's digital journey. The, tr the Trust has consistently argued that the BBC has a special responsibility to protect and enrich the public space in which citizens can exchange views, challenge the powerful, explore and learn. It does that by striving to reach all households through the range of its services. But here too, there are profound challenges ahead. I spoke earlier of the prospects for convergence across platforms, but there are other trends too. What we might call the digital equivalent of the Enclosure Acts, where there is an increasing tendency to fill the digital space with walled gardens of one sort or another to maximise commercial returns. The danger is that public space is enclosed and the public themselves are segmented by ability to pay and by where they live, with some getting notably poorer services than the rest. The BBC must act as a counterweight here, continuing to develop not walled gardens, but the digital equivalent of those great Victorian public parks, open to all, enhancing and enriching the lives of every citizen. UView will play its part in this, and that's why the Trust has emphasised the importance of it being an open partnership, open to all comers. So will developments like ensuring that the BBC website encourages visitors to click through to other sites which offer additional and sometimes richer information. My fourth continuing priority for the Trust will be ensuring the authority, impartiality and accuracy of the BBC's journalism. Strong leadership, investment in specialist editors, strengthened cross-platform working and the School of Journalism have all served to enrich the public offering. But this is still work in progress, and there is always more to do to meet the BBC's own aspirations, and especially the aspirations of our best journalists. So much of the BBC's mission and reputation rests on the quality and public standard of its news services, that this must always be a major preoccupation for the Trust. And of course, BBC impartiality goes hand in hand with BBC independence. They are two sides of the same coin. So continuing to guard the BBC's independence will also remain a permanent preoccupation for the Trust. Where the BBC's independence is concerned, we can never take it for granted that the, the battle has been fought and won. The struggle, sometimes with commercial interests, more often with political ones, is permanent. It will always need to be fought with vigour and tenacity. Now, I began by saying that history will record this as a strong period for the BBC. Yes, these have been turbulent years, but the, B the fact that the BBC has come through them in good shape to face the future is evidence of its fundamental resilience 
and, if I may say so, evidence of the, effective, the effectiveness of the trust in reshaping it so that it better represents the interests of the public. There's a pervasive myth in British public life, the myth of the, of the fall, of the golden age long gone, of the best now always being behind us. But this is not a narrative into which you can easily slot the BBC. Of course, it's not perfect. Of course, there's more to be done. But I believe the BBC is an institution that's becoming markedly more responsive to the public who own it, and that's something to celebrate. And let me also say this. With all its failings, with all its lapses from grace, the BBC continues to be the greatest cultural institution that the United Kingdom has ever produced. And we should not be shy about celebrating that too. Thank you. So, Michael, many um, thanks. A very broad-ranging speech, uh, very strong, confident words, I think, to end on, uh, and a whole range of issues um, addressed to do with uh, institutional governance, programming quality, technological developments, market pressures, uh, standing in the world, future challenges. So I'm sure there are many questions in this audience. Um, since I already see many hands shooting up, I'm going to ask people to uh, introduce themselves, uh, or at least just say who they are very briefly, uh, and um, keep their questions as uh, short questions. So thank you. Yes. Um, well, well um, should Lord Patton step down as a member of the Conservative Party if, as expected, he becomes BBC chairman? Uh, Paul, do you know, I, I probably could have put together three questions you are likely to ask uh, tonight. That would, certainly have, uh, that would certainly have featured amongst them. You will note that it doesn't directly relate to my speech tonight, but let me, uh, let me answer. Um, I think that's a decision uh, for Lord Patton, uh, if, he is, uh, if his appointment is confirmed. Um, I don't want to say very much more, other than to add that what is important to this job is it that it is occupied by somebody who is independent, has a, uh, a personal courage, and I think uh, Chris Patton uh, will demonstrate exactly those skills. I leave him to decide questions of party membership. I thank you for the uh, opportunity to comment. Yeah. Valerie Tort, I'm an ex-World Service uh, producer, and as such, uh, my heart is uh, aching because the World Service in, in the last uh, license fee settlement has been moved from the Foreign Office to the uh, BBC. Don't you see, a, isn't there a danger that uh, the continuing cuts will make the World Service a soft target because it's, as you quoted, the, the BBC has to guard the interests of the British public and although the World Service uh, is, I think, is the best ambassador for Britain, but somehow politicians always think that, that that's an, an, an obvious target. Valerie, um, uh, thank you for that question, and, and your pain will be shared very widely in here, I think. Everybody recognises the value and uh, distinctiveness of the World Service. Let me for a moment separate two effects. Um, one effect is that we are having to make 
very painful, rather deep cuts because of the government's decision to reduce the funding for the World Service in the remaining two years that it will be responsible for it. And those are the changes taking place at the moment, made more intense, I have to say, by the fact that they are having to be executed over a very short period. The decision to agree to the World Service being funded from the licence fee after that period, directly by the BBC, obviously places pressure on the BBC's funding, but actually has, I think, a silver lining. Uh, it enables us to bring the different parts of BBC journalism more firmly together. I think it gives us an opportunity to protect the precious assets uh, in the World Service, to use uh, the news gathered more effectively uh, in domestic news. And I don't personally have the anxiety about where the public stands on this, because the trust has found quite clear evidence of and particularly amongst younger audiences, a really vital interest in learning more about the world, in requiring the BBC to deliver against that objective that it brings the, the world to the UK. And so I think this will be understood as a natural move, and frankly in some other parts of the world, it will be a very clear message, further reinforcement, that the World Service is independent and not a, a, an arm of the state. So there are, some, there are some positives, but also some pressures. But let's separate them from, from the rather painful set of cuts taking place at the moment. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah. Tara Conlan from The Guardian. Um, you're seen as having been the right chairman at the right time for the BBC Trust, um, establishing it in its infancy at, at a difficult time. And you've also been more open. Um, I can't remember many previous BBC chairmen admitting and, and being so frank, admitting to memorable cock-ups on their watch. Um, why, why do you think Lord Patton is suited to lead the BBC Trust at this point in its history? Um, and also, as you won't be at the BBC when, uh, when this comes to the Trust, so we won't be able to ask you, what do you think of the proposal to cut BBC Two daytime and replace it with news output? Um. Thanks, Tara. Perhaps you could limit your article just to the first preamble to that question, which I liked. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say anything about uh, Chris Pan. Let me, let me underline that's, you know, that it, this is not a trust appointment. It's appointed by government, eventually endorsed by, by the Queen. There's a clear and open process for that. Um, and you should ask those questions of those who play a part in, in that. Uh, let me turn, though, to the second part of your question, which is about the suggestion that um, the nature of BBC Two's daytime uh, content might be changed dramatically. Let me underline, this is one idea that has come out of a very wide-ranging internal discussion amongst BBC staff about how to respond to the licence fee settlement and to implement the BBC strategy, which the Trust has approved. It's just one idea. It is not the preferred idea. It is not uh, yet a proposal to the Trust, nor, nor is it likely that it will become so. But let me not prejudge. That discussion uh, is a healthy one. It's involving BBC staff. There's a lot of interest and enthusiasm about it. And the Trust is looking forward to learning not only uh, how you, uh, wh whether there are some exciting ideas that will enable us to use our more limited resources to greater effect, but also that we have 
um, you know, thoroughgoing support amongst staff for some of the difficult changes which have to be made. Okay, I see three questions here. Yes, okay, Richard. Yeah. Um, Richard Collins, I teach media studies at the Open University. Um, I'll also begin with a preamble that I hope you'll like, Sir Michael, and um, to endorse um, your comments that uh, the trust is um, a really significant step forward from the governors in promoting value for money, transparency, and so on. But I was intrigued by your reference to the Burns Committee and saying that there was a loose end there about who would allocate the licence fee and on what criteria. Now that's, I think, a loose end now when the licence fee funds um, or is to fund S4C, local TV stations, broadband rollout, as well as the BBC. So my question is, who makes those allocations? And if it is the trust, how is that allocation to be seen to be impartial when the trust has got specific responsibilities to and for the BBC? Thank you. Um, well, the, the root of this, of course, is what you think the licence fee is. And, uh, and the trust has been very clear that it believes the licence fee uh, has been raised from the public on the clear understanding that it would be spent on the BBC. And that's why we took such a strong line uh, when an earlier government sought to introduce the notion of, uh, of top slicing that fee to share with others, believing that it was uh, an inappropriate, it was a welching on a deal that had been done with the public. Uh, the new settlement, and there's room, there's room for debate about this, I don't want to pretend that this is all absolutely, you know, it's a, a single view and it's shine, but our view on the settlement, and we see this reflected quite clearly in the letter that came to us uh, to, to basically consolidate the, the agreement from, from Jeremy Hunt, is that actually the things that the BBC is required to take on, most significantly the World Service, but also the funding of S4C, a modest contribution to, um, uh, to, to local television into the future. They are all issues in which, in which the, are consistent with the BBC's public purposes and that where the trust will be making the expenditure. Now, there, in a number of those areas, we are not yet. The, 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 the ink is not dry on the detailed negotiations about how they work. But the trust approaches this quite clearly. This is a point of principle. We have agreed nothing which represents top slicing. We will agree nothing that represents top slicing, despite the fact that many of the things that we have agreed to are valuable, important, and consistent as part of the BBC's mission. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Sanjay Dumian. I am an MA student from the University of Westminster. Uh, so, Michael, you were talking about editorial cock-ups. Now, um, I was wondering whether you could clarify the situation with, for example, the Hindi service that's been closed. We're now backtracking. Six Music was a mark for closure. We backtracked on that. The Asian Network, same thing. There doesn't seem to be any you know, strategic clarity and I think that these, you know, three stations, you know, have kind of been, you know, left in a limbo. Uh, and, you know, aren't we, shouldn't we be finding a solution before announcing anything instead of announcing a decision <coughs> and then going back on it? I think that is also an element that's going <coughs> to hit BBC credibility. And, you know, there are a lot of 
tweets going on at the moment about whether DFID is going to get involved in funding World Service Station. Can you clarify some of those elements for us, please? Well, you, you seem to anchor um, uh, back to, uh, to an earlier era, if you don't mind me saying that, uh, when it was okay, uh, when using public money, to basically make all these decisions in private and then tell the world what you've done. And that's t that's, I agree with you, that's much neater. That's much more, gives you much more certainty for staff. You just do it in a closed room and then you tell people what's going to happen. The trust represents a completely different model. And indeed the charter, I think the heart of the charter is stretching the process of decision making so the public can see more clearly what's being done on their behalf and judge and participate more actively in whether these are the right decisions. Now let's just very briefly take the three that you touch upon because they are all quite different. Uh, let's deal with six music. In response to a challenge from the Trust to look very carefully at the boundaries of the BBC and to establish whether there were some services which were of lower priority, the Director General did come forward with proposals both for the closure of Six Music, uh, with a suggestion for the closure of Six Music and a suggestion of the closure of the Asian Network. It may look laborious, but actually the, this is a, lo, you know, a long uh, examination. And what it's resulted in, the first thing it resulted in, is when the Trust tested the arguments in favour of Six Music, we found actually they, they were found wanting. But actually this is an extraordinary distinctive service. There was no strong message from commercial radio that this was sitting in their space. Indeed, there were representations from many other quarters that this did a job that no other uh, station did. And of course, the very question over its, over its survival had massively increased the number of people who'd sampled it and who remain to this day a much bigger audience. So what else would the Trust have done but to say, we understand why you've put this to us, but actually it isn't the right solution. And the bigger issues are about going back and looking again at one, radios one and two and making them more distinctive from what's in the commercial sector. In the case of the Asian network, on the basis of the evidence we saw and the open consultation, uh, we could see that actually this service was no longer serving the purpose that it, uh, that it had been set up for. And that despite uh, several attempts to sort of reshape it, still hadn't really captured uh, an audience of, uh, of the size and enthusiasm that it deserved. And so all that we said there was, we are open-minded on this. If you want to bring forward, if you now want to go through the formal process of closing this service, bring the proposal to us. That currently rests with the Director General. So there you have a very open process, which has resulted in us saying that we are not willing to contemplate the closure of six, but that we would contemplate the closure of the Asian network, but that would, only, that would still be subject to open process and debate. Now let's go to, to the Hindi service. The only reason this is uh, under threat at the moment, let's be clear, is the reduced Foreign Office grant for BBC World Service. That's why uh, this, th this is uh, uh, up for closure at the moment. Um, and just in this last week have emerged proposals from commercial interests based in India to keep the service going. This is not 
This is not the BBC saying this is a reprieve. It's saying we will maintain the core elements of this service for a short period to give us time to sort out whether actually these proposals really are robust because we don't want to close it if we don't have to. Again, I think this is evidence of good, open, considered decision-making. So, time to reflect, I think, on which model you want. Um, I see that I've given uh, the microphone both to a, a man here and also at the back. I want to go here, and then there are um, Sally and also Anne. Luff. I think two patient women at the back. So, here and then here, and then up at the top. Yeah. Thank you very much. David Bram, I'm a licensed fee payer among, uh, amongst anything else. So, Michael, thank you very much for your candid speech. It was enlightening. Uh, you started off by talking about the, uh, the model of the trust, going from a governor model to now something that's based more on a non-executive board from a, from a company. But I think we're missing accountability for, for appointments uh, for positions like yours and the other trustees. Do you feel it's right that the licence fee payer that you claim to be accountable to and to represent don't have any say at all on, on your, your and your other trustees' appointment, firstly? And secondly, uh, Lord Davis... Uh, uh, published a report recently on diversity on, on, on boards of companies. Do you think that the BBC and other public sector um, boards should be uh, um, diverse, particularly of women and, and, and non-ethnic backgrounds? David, thank you uh, for that. And uh, let, let me acknowledge there's room for debate. There's room for debate about how we run our country. Um, there's room for arguing that uh, the public should have a bigger say in the appointment to some bodies. But uh, uh, let's also be clear that the way we do run our country is by one of representative democracy, that the government sets the governance arrangements for the BBC, and there is then an open process that anybody can apply to, although let me also be clear that people who tend to be selected are those with proven track records in working at a board level. And I, if we had more time, I would... I think I strongly argue that actually people who've got those skills and experience can be more forceful on behalf of the public if they are listening, if they're basing their decisions on evidence and engagement with the public, then sometimes the public could be themselves. But there's room for a debate about uh, how you might do that a different way in the future. So there's no one perfect answer. This is the way it's done now. Let me um, talk about the board at the moment. One of the pleasures for me of chairing the BBC Trust is from the moment that I arrived, and it continues, this is a board made up of a majority of women. And women exhibit not only patience, as we, as we know, at the, uh, uh, the back of the room, but all sorts of other qualities, which I think dramatically enrich our board compared with some of the predominantly male boards uh, on which I've also sat. Um, yes, of course, diversity is important. Uh, making sure, you know, not, not only in terms of gender, but age, uh, ethnicity, but also location. I, I, I come back to this. This is a country where place matters. And so the fact that we have trustees specifically appointed to represent each of the, uh, each of the four nations is a further strength for us and a, a further attempt to ensure that diversity of views in a board of 12. Yeah, Thank Sally. you. Sally Broughton from here at the LSE. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the BBC Jam decision yes. um, from the Trust, but you didn't make any reference to the European Commission's interest in that. 
case. And I'm wondering to what extent the PVT and the trust are sort of a preemptive countermeasure to commission involvement, and if you expect future challenges <coughs> related to EU state aid policy coming from that direction. Uh, thank you, uh, Sally. Um, and and you, you, you're right, I didn't mention it, and it's an important part of the story. But as briefly as I can, BBC Jam, which was a uh, curriculum-based service, um, uh, with some great, some great content, uh, was introduced before the, before the Trust came into existence, and without uh, a public value test, or indeed any other public test, to explore and balance the public gain from this new service and the uh, impact that it had on other providers. And I think it's fair to say that, that service was uh, developed in a rather insular fashion. And despite uh, constant complaints from British companies who'd invested and had traditionally been in the area of curriculum support, companies like Let's, Research Machines and others, uh, that the BBC was encroaching on their territory and damaging investment that they'd already made, that those issues were not fully weighed and considered. And it led to the point that when the service was then launched, those companies collectively went to the European Commission, uh, appealed uh, for action under the competition laws, and the, and the European Commission, without deciding fully on the merits, could see enough of a case to answer to say to the BBC, there are two options. You, we don't feel on the basis of what we can see that this has been fully considered. We are going to investigate it. Uh, that might take over a year, and you must not change the service anymore over that year uh, whilst we investigate. Or alternatively, you can decide for yourself that you should take the service away and remove the complaint. And the trust, early in, its, uh, early in its life, took the decision that this, actually, there was no choice here. You either had an ossified service which would quickly grow tired and, uh, and irrelevant to its audience, or you took the bold decision of taking it off air uh, and disappointing, undoubtedly disappointing those who, who'd come to it at launch, but in the interest of coming back with something which was more carefully designed to work with rather than against the interests of companies who had already invested here. That's the background. Um, and that, so it was a choice by the trust. It was taken. It was a bold decision. Um, I don't see our work as preempting the involvement of the uh, European Commission. But it's like governance at every level, isn't it? It is always there to make sure the organisation itself, in this case the BBC, in another case the LSE, in another case the uh, um, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, governance is there to make sure the organisation asks the right questions, does the right job before the regulator gets involved. And a great system is when you don't, the regulator feels happy not to get involved. Uh, yes, Anne, Anne Lapping. Yeah. <clears throat> concerns about market impact when you take decisions at the BBC. Given that, and given the public debate at the moment about plurality, do you have any worries about the overwhelming dominance of the BBC in broadcast and online news? 
I think, uh, firstly, the, BBC, the heart of the BBC's job on behalf of the British public is to enable this country to be well informed about decisions that are made on its behalf, to understand what's going on in the world and its relevance to the UK, to uh, improve people's understanding of the events day by day. So news is right at the heart of the BBC's mission, and I underlined that in my speech. And so uh, I think this is non-negotiable. The BBC uh, is strong in news. It's continued that strength online as well as uh, in television and radio, and that will continue into the future. Uh, it isn't monolithic, uh, although there continue to be weaknesses, particularly for print media as they try to find a, uh, a new economic model for the future. But there are other big organizations, and one of the interesting things of the last two years is how two years ago, the debate about the dominance of the BBC sort of really turned a blind eye to a much bigger organization in the shape of Sky with much bigger revenues. Now, I don't think that's, you know, Thanks to James Murdoch's contribution in Edinburgh, that's not hidden anymore. That's much clearer and open for, uh, for public scrutiny and discussion. So I don't think this is a case of the BBC dominating with no other powerful influences. You've got Google increasingly moving into this space. The issue now is how the BBC pr pr provides for the British public in that open and transparent way. Um, uh, uh, balanced against some of the big contributions from other providers, some of whom I've named. Um, there's a very patient man here who I'd like to go to next. And then um, uh, we do need to finish at eight, so we're going to have to take then, I think, a final round of them. Um, yeah, um, If you want quick to the final three, I, I can give quick answers yeah. to them. Yeah. Good evening, Sir Michael. Alexis Flynn, uh, Dalgen's Newswires. Um, the question that I have is, follows on from the uh, previous uh, woman's. Um, it's in respect of your fourth continuing priority for the trust. Um, and what, if any, implications will a potential takeover of B Sky B by News Corp have on the BBC's news remit? Well, I think the shortest answer, I, I, I'm not sure that it need have any other than let me acknowledge that um, Sky News has been an innovative uh, news service um, and I think has, the BBC has had things to learn from Sky News. Um, you know, that's not a, a unique and new development. Uh, public and private sectors uh, learn from each other all of the time. Um, so I don't think there's, a, there's any immediate uh, issue there. What I was seeking to underline today is that because news is at the very heart of the BBC's mission, we can never be complacent and believe, even if we, even if we believe the BBC standards are palpably better than elsewhere, we should constantly be challenging the BBC to do more, to, uh, to be more authoritative, better informed. Um, and that's the message which I, which I think the Trust will continue to give. 
Okay, I'm going to take them. Um, I think we probably just have time for three more, which I'll take together and then ask Sir Michael to uh, reply. So, yes, a man there in green and a woman in front. And, um, yes, well, I'm, there I'm, are... I'm David, sorry. Okay. I'm David Glue. Uh, I'm not linked to the LSE. On Sunday morning, Defence Secretary Fox told Andrew Maher British diplomats were in rebel-controlled rebel East Libya but wouldn't comment on the rumour two diplomats and six soldiers had been arrested. On Sunday evening, the rumours had been shown true, but by then rebels had released the eight to a British frigate. Sunday events allowed Gaddafi to claim the rebels were British poodles and guaranteed his own side would accept it when he began using warplanes and hugely increasing his use of artillery. Andrew Maher's questions were incredibly feeble. He should have said, surely Britain never negotiates with rebels. He never said Gaddafi is the legitimate president as he controls the capital and two-thirds of the country. He should have sneered at official British policy, which is to demand Gaddafi fly to the Hague and not on the backs of the prison. Um, yes, surely it's obvious, um, looking at uh, events in Libya, surely it's obvious that the British government wanted uh, the eight to be arrested, and, um, and they're delighted that, Brit uh, that Gaddafi has increased his use of air force and army, so it gives um, a pretext for um, NATO to intervene uh, with, with its air force. So my question, they were Trojan horse, those eight were Trojan horse or agents provocateurs. So my question is, why don't you sack, why does the BBC sack Andrew Maher for his feeble questioning of Dr. Fox, and, and um, especially as the Sunday's events to look like the turning point of the Libyan civil war. Let's take the honors. Let's take the honors. I come back to that. Okay. Um, yes. Um, so, lady just here. Yeah. And then I'll come back to. Yeah. Hi there. Yes, Eric. Working? Yeah. yeah. Um, Erica Gorn, I do stuff at BBC. Um, I've just got a quick question about um, a couple of things that you said. Firstly, uh, the idea of diversity at the BBC um, and representing those audiences. And secondly, by actually uh, value for money. Um, it's just a quick point. Basically, um, where I work, for example, there's a lot of staff contracts being cut. Um, and in programming, there's a lot of freelancers and especially younger people, particularly people who are about to graduate and a few years older, um, they're finding contracts of between one month and three months the norm. So my question is, um, that's to cut costs in certain ways in terms of downtime and things like that. Um, can you kind of reconcile cutting costs with also representing um, younger people and people from um, diverse backgrounds who may not be able to afford to work on such short-term contracts? And also in the future, um, if people are looking for families and things like that, um, will that affect the type of person that can work at the BBC? Um, yeah. Um, uh, yes, okay, two here quickly, yeah. Uh, you got in, Neil. You got Finally. In. Yeah. Uh, Neil Midgley, Daily Telegraph. I'm sure you, you'll miss this, Sir Michael. I might. Um, <laughs> unlike the male, I have high standards. Now, I will go back to something you said in your speech. Um, you, were talking about, um, you, you, you were talking about your regrets about the trust as opposed to cock-ups in the, the wider BBC, and you said you could have been clearer in demonstrating that you were actively tackling some issues of public concern, and you mentioned the BBC's senior pay bill. You said this is not something that could be done overnight, and the Trust has been onto it since 2008. We should have made that clearer. It seemed from that one specific example that your greatest regret was not shouting louder about what a great job you were doing. Is that really the only mistake that the Trust has made, or have there, have there been substantive 
mistakes that have been made in the decisions taken. Okay, and last question down here also at the front, yeah. Hi, um, I also have a question that relates to your speech, Catherine from Broadcast Magazine. Um, you said that uh, you think that history will see the last few years as sort of golden age of BBC. Does that mean that you think that age is coming to an end and uh, what do you think is causing that? Is it the financial pressure or is it the end of your tenure? <laughs> what, a lovely, what a lovely note to end on. It's, a, it's been such a great week for hubris as well, hasn't it, really? You know, uh, Let's, um, let's, uh, David, um, do you know, I, I really sense that your question is probably better aimed at uh, Liam Fox, because I think your real concern is about uh, government policy here. But um, I'll make you an offer. I'll make you an offer. Uh, I would take your comments back and share them with Andrew Mann, ask him to reflect on them. Okay, okay. Well, um, Okay, let me, let me just say that the, the, the trust is not into summary executions, but... Um, okay. I absolutely hear your point, and I can see that you were disappointed, and I, and I don't want to... You know, the BBC provides hours of current affairs and news coverage... And without having, I didn't see that that interview, and I, but I would acknowledge that sometimes even our most skilled presenters don't present, they do not offer, you know, aren't always playing at the very top of their game. And I don't know if that's in that category, but let me ask him what he thinks about it, because that would probably be a balanced way of dealing with it. Let me move on to Erica on uh, her concerns about young people. Erica, clearly. You do not take 16% and more out of the BBC's budget without doing damage. You don't. And I'm, from the moment we signed that settlement, uh, I've been very clear. That you, it's not a deliverable by just making some efficiency savings. And politicians who talk about endless efficiency savings do us no service, any of us, as the British public, in understanding that actually, if you take money out, you do, you do do damage. You reduce what can be done. Um, it's inevitably the case that as you try to take money out, uh, you go for where it's easiest to take it out, and short-term contracts in their very nature are easier to, uh, to end. But that can have implications for both diversity and for bringing on new energy. And you know, I, I'm absolutely confident the director and the, and the BBC are sensitive to that issue that doesn't mean it isn't going to feel painful in how you maintain a workforce that's still got further to go to reflect the nature of this, this modern uh, Britain and desperately needs to bring young talent in to keep, the sort of, uh, to keep the engine running. With more time, we might go on to talk about other complications as well, about uh, an issue the BBC is very live to about not having a, the port of entry depending upon voluntary effort, which I think is beginning to distinguish between who can hope to have a career in the BBC. So, so some, some challenges there. Uh, Neil, um, uh, if you felt there was a sort of hint of arguing that we should have been sort of thumping our chest earlier, saying what a good job we're doing, then, that, then I failed to communicate. But I don't 
for a moment take any pleasure in reducing the salaries of people who reached a contract with the BBC to be paid one salary only to feel, only to find that actually there is public concern about that salary in different market circumstances. I don't take any pleasure in that and that's probably why we're a bit diffident about publicly saying that we'd heard public concern and we were tackling the issue of top pay at the BBC. What we have done, and I think in a way that despite all of the debate is not being done elsewhere, is to respond to the public concern. We now have a 14% reduction in the cost of senior management. That will be reduced further to the 25% promised by the end of this year. Not as a, something that we should delight in, but because we knew it was necessary to regain public confidence. And we, and we basically know who we're working for in this exercise. So it's not here me trying to strut, the, you know, uh, um, uh, strut about on this. No pleasure, but a job to be done, and one that's actually been done, rather than people just talking about it. Um, Catherine, uh, I don't think I talked about a golden age. I think I was much more careful in my language. I talked about when the history... Uh, books are written this will um, uh, that this will be seen as I, here I quote one of the BBC's strong periods which is I think you might agree just a bit different from saying golden age um, but um, will it come to an end well I'm, I'm really confident that we have a BBC strongly focused on value mon for money strongly focused on distinctiveness strongly focused on not doing what other people do perfectly well and therefore using the money that it gets to greater effect, how that will combine with a significantly smaller sum of money, um, uh, I think we have yet to see. But I would be optimistic. And I'm absolutely confident that the colleagues I leave on the trust, uh, some of whom are here tonight, will continue their stewardship of these issues and therefore... I part with some confidence, very considerable confidence, both for trust and BBC, and by implication for the British public that we serve. I know there are many um, more questions, and some have been disappointed, but I think we must agree this has been a very um, full discussion, and Sir Michael Lyons has been very um, generous with his time and his thoughts uh, at this crucial moment uh, for the BBC. So um, please join me in thanking him very much. <laughs>